Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. It's October 23rd, 2018, two weeks until the midterm elections. And I'm Charlie Sykes. We're watching an early morning drop in the stock market over worries about China and the trade war, which, remember, trade wars were supposed to be easy. 3M cut its earning guidance. Caterpillar is warning that it's going to have to raise prices because steel is becoming so much more expensive. And the caravan is still heading north. And it's become a favorite talking point on the campaign trail. President Trump says he uh, is uh, promising a big middle class tax cut before November. But since Congress isn't even in session, that's that's not going to happen. Uh, meanwhile, we're deciding what we want to believe about the Saudi story about the murder, uh, murder of Jamal Khashoggi, whose body has uh, reportedly been found. Um, and then proving that politics is nothing if not flexible. Ted Cruz makes the full transition from Lion Ted to beautiful Ted as he campaigns with Trump in Texas. Trump declares down there that he is a nationalist, which for some reason seems to surprise folks because we kind of knew that, didn't we? It wasn't the America first thing a tip off. Uh, law enforcement officials are saying that a device found in a New York home owned by George Soros was a bomb with explosive powder. And of course, we're getting a ton of polls which show Trump's approval rating ticking up, tight races in the battleground congressional districts with Democrats holding a narrow, statistically insignificant lead in the races that will determine control of the House. And because it is Tuesday, it is time for the Tuesday morning quarterback with Greg Easterbrook. Thanks for joining me. I appreciate it. Sure, Charlie. Uh, well, it pops into my mind since you mentioned the polls, let me first say, Nate Silver has been saying for two months and, and, and saying as of this morning that it's absolutely certain that the Democrats will win the House. So this means that the Republicans are going to keep the House because <laughs> you look at Nate Silver's track record, he has never been right about anything. How, boy, I'd like to have that guy's job of being constantly wrong and praised as a seer. Well, what, what is interesting is is you look back at how much of the of the coverage was has been just based on the assumption that there was going to be a big blue wave. And so, you know, almost every analysis begins, well, uh, Democrats are definitely going to win the House and Republicans will probably hold the Senate. And it's like, wait, wait, can we just notice that the, the polls are changing and they are shifting and the unknowns continue to multiply? So who knows if a lot of people look foolish on election night 2018 it will pretty much be deja vu all over again, won't it? Because the same folks look pretty foolish, and I'm holding my hand on election night in 2016. Greg, you and I just had a fascinating conversation <laughs> before we started this podcast about the caravan. Uh, you, you, are, you, you confessed to switching back and forth between football and watching some of the cable coverage of the caravan. Yes. And uh, first, let's assume the caravan's a real thing. I'm not mm. sure I'm convinced of that, but let's uh, assume it is. Last night I was watching Monday Night Football, and every time there was a stoppage in play, and this being the NFL, that was every 90 seconds, <laughs> I, I switched at random either to CNN, which is the official mouthpiece of the Democratic Party, or to Fox News, which is the official mouthpiece piece of the GOP. Over on CNN, they were talking exclusively about Khashoggi. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Mm -hmm. the, 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 the caravan was never mentioned. Over on Fox, they were talking exclusively about the caravan. Uh, Khashoggi was never mentioned. And I think that tells me that the caravan is a Republican production at some level. It and that Fox News got the memo saying, talk about this, don't talk about anything else. And CNN got the memo. And I think the memo in this case is, is not a metaphorical memo. I think it's an actual memo. <laughs> and that CNN got the memo saying, talk about Khashoggi, don't mention the caravan. 
Well, you, you know, I, I, and I don't want to go on record as saying I hate conspiracy theories and um, I avoid them whenever possible. I always believe that the simplest explanation is almost always the correct uh, explanation. But, you know, when, when the question comes up, who's really behind the caravan? And of course, you know, Trump is suggesting the Democrats are behind it or George Soros is behind it or, 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 or whatever. But I, I think, as I mentioned to Jonathan last yesterday, if, if, if you think of Donald Trump as the executive producer of this reality TV show of the midterm campaign, you know, this would be exactly the scene he would want. This would be something that he and Steve Bannon would say, hey, can we script this out? This is what it's going to look like. This is what we are going to say. This is an amazing, immense gift to Donald Trump. It feeds into every one of his themes that America is under siege, is under attack, and only he can defend it. You know, it's that it's that odd sort of juxtaposition that I am, you know, we are winning all the time, except we are also victims. We, we're in charge of everything, but anything that goes wrong is the other party's uh, fault. Uh, Gary Kasparov made, made this point. But I, I'm so I'm not suggesting here. I want to make it clear that that Republicans have anything to do with the caravan. But boy, they they could not have come up with a bigger closing image. Yeah, and it is it's just impossible to believe that five thousand people all spontaneously said, "Hey, let's walk thousands of miles and arrive there exactly on election day." Um, <laughs> and it is great political theater, and I hope I'm attributing this thought to the right person. I think it's Jeff Goldberg of the Atlantic who said that the core problem with American politics in the period of, that we're in right now is that we're viewing politics as a form of entertainment. Mm -hmm. And it not only shouldn't be a, a form of entertainment, enter, trying to make it entertainment debases everybody. And uh, I do think that there's a lot of truth in that. You know, I think it was Neil Postman who wrote about that. Was that back in the 70s or the 80s? Yes, that, you yes know, it was, yeah. Yeah, was, uh, yeah, was entertaining ourselves to death. And, and we, we're, we're living in that. Uh, the other thing is, and it was before we, we started this, I was reading the David Brooks uh, column um, and he was saying, you know, about the the Democrats failure to sort of make their, their case that the Democrats are, uh, you know, continuing to think that politics is all about economics. And uh, and, and I, I'm, I'm not second guessing their decision to go all in on on health care, but that that they really do think of this as being, uh, you know, the politics as being people voting for their economic interest when, in fact, we're in a new era of politics where people vote on cultural identity, um, you know, who will protect the country and all of that. And so they they do seem to have a there, there does seem to be a messaging gap. And I, I also mentioned I was on a show yesterday um, with a uh, uh, with a Democratic congresswoman. And we, and we were this was actually MSNBC. And we were talking about the you know, what was happening with the caravan at, at the border. And she had, you know, lots of rhetoric to throw out. And, and when it came to me, I said, I. I do think that Democrats are going to have to make it clear at some point that they do believe that nations have borders and that that, yes, you know, you, you are not for open borders and you can deal with this humanely, you know, without separating children from their parents. But I do think it's essential for them not to basically agree with Donald Trump in saying that Democrats favor just, hey, bring them on in. Come on in. Uh our listeners may know that Barack Obama himself said a couple of months ago in a speech that nations have to enforce their border laws and there is no right to cross a border and it's time the Democratic Party dealt with that. That's a forbidden thought, not just to the left, but it's the forbidden thought to the mainstream of the Democratic Party right now. 
which is which is dangerous because voters, if they think, you know, if 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 they think one party is going to stop that and one party is going to let them in, um, I can pretty much tell you how the election is going to go. All right. Now, I, I do want to come back to a little bit of politics a little bit later as you have some thoughts on Elizabeth Warren. You want to talk about the if, if we had to create a sort of a list of people engaging in political malpractice, she'd be on my list. I think she's on your list as as well. But uh, y- your column today, the Tuesday morning quarterback, deals with the really, I think, fascinating question about the the, the NFL, um, offense versus defense. And you quote this old adage, offense sells tickets, defense wins titles. Is this... How is it shaping up this season, though, offense versus defense? We actually had a couple of test cases of the best offenses versus the best defenses. Well, we have a, at least a temporary swing toward offense. And mm-hmm. The big game Sunday was the Saints with going into Sunday's game with, a, with the highest scoring offense, playing the, the Ravens going into Sunday's game with the, with the least points allowed. So it was a classic offense versus defense matchup, and offense won that matchup. That's relatively rare, at least in recent NFL annals. It, as I show in, in today's TMQ, there have been eight cases where the Super Bowl matched the number one offense versus the number one defense, and defense won seven out of eight times. So in the, in the past— that is an impress- That's an impressive number. Defense uh, wins titles. If yeah. you think think about the the uh, the, the most um, telling recent example is the two. I'm trying, struggling to remember what year it was. I think 2014 Super Bowl, the one in New Jersey, pitting the Denver Broncos, who had just had the highest scoring mm-hmm. season in NFL history, versus the Seattle Seahawks, who had a power defense and a conservative run game, and the Seahawks killed them. And it, and it wasn't just that they had good luck with a two, couple of interceptions. The Seahawks' defense was much better than the Broncos' offense. That's been that's been the standard of the NFL for 20 years or so. This year, okay, it's only seven weeks. Everybody who knows the law of large numbers knows that this may wash out by the end of the season. But so far, offense is winning the confrontations with defense, and scoring is up to 24.1 points per team per game, which is two and a half points more than per team per game, and thus a significant amount compared to last year, and and three more points per team per game compared to 20 years ago. Yeah, I just want to run through these, because I'm trying to remember all of these games. I, I do think that that's that seven to one ratio of uh, of, of defense beating offense in the Super Bowl is, is pretty impressive. Okay, Patriots over Falcons 2017, Broncos over Panthers 2016, the one you just mentioned, Seahawks over Broncos 2014, the Bucks over the Raiders 2003, Giants over Bills 1991, 49ers over Dolphins 1985, Steelers over Cowboys 1979. Um, these were the best defense beating the best offense, with the top offense prevailing over the top defense only once, 1990, 49ers over the Broncos. Hmm. So what, uh, well, what, what, what is shifting? What do you think is, uh, is, is shifting this pendulum? We have several things happening at once, and some of them are deliberate on the league's part. Because offense sells tickets, the league wants to encourage high scoring and especially the completion of passes. So we've seen several rule changes. Rule changes to favor the passing game really started about 20 years ago, but they continue to accelerate and add up, and there are a couple new 
rule changes this year. As as your listeners know, it's basically illegal to hit the quarterback now. The, and, and intimidating the quarterback by knocking him on the ground was a classic defensive tactic of most of the successful defenses you just mentioned. That, that tactic is now almost illegal. Uh, we've had a crackdown on deliberate helmet-to-helmet hits, and, and that's good. That was necessary. It had to happen. But the deliberate the, the deliberate headhunter style of play mainly was a tactic the defense used against the offense. So the, the rule changes are favoring the offense. I, I say in TMQ today that the children of seven-on-seven seven have come home, and any of you listeners who've followed high school football in the last 15, 20 years know that that seven-on-seven seven has taken over prep football, especially in the South, especially in Florida, hmm. tex- Texas, and other and other states where football culture is king, uh, guys play football all year long in seven-on-seven leagues. In seven-on-seven leagues, all you do is throw the ball. So the guys who are coming into the NFL now are used to throwing the ball. They're not used to running the ball. Blocking, tackling, those are strange things to them. But but throwing the ball and catching it, those are uh, very familiar. So I think these these things have also encouraged offense. And finally, it, uh, it has been a long-standing bet noir of mine that coaches punt way too much on fourth and short. That's finally starting to change. Hmm. And, and all the data analysis, including some that I did years ago, shows that if you didn't punt on fourth and short, scoring would increase. We finally see this trend starting to catch on. The Eagles won the Super Bowl last year by going for it on fourth down. The Saints defeated the Ravens by going for it on fourth down five times, converting four. That's a real big number Mm -hmm. uh, in NFL terms. And all the data shows that the more you go for it on fourth and short, the more points you score. And that's exactly what we're observing so far this season. Talk to me about uh, your your column. You devote some time to uh, John Gruden, the new Raiders head coach, uh, Gruden the Elder. You uh, you note that uh, Gruden clearly expected his return would be a coronation akin to a monarch assuming the British throne. Instead, well, the Raiders are, uh, in in a word, uh, awful. They are, and so what Gruden clearly is disappointed. We have we we have this illusion that coaches are wonderful geniuses, and this illusion is, of course encouraged by coaches, but that all coaches have to do is walk into a room and their genius will radiate. And that's why they should be paid $10 million a year as, as John Gruden, Gruden, the elders is, is now receiving. And it just hasn't worked out that way at Oakland. So what's he doing? He's shifting blame to cover his rear end. He's traded the team's two best players, Khalil Mack and Amari Cooper. He is, according to the internet, and if it's on the internet, it must be true. It must be true, yeah. Got to be true. He's also trying to trade away Gary and Conley, who's not that well known, but who was the Raiders' number one draft choice in 2007. He trades all these guys away, and then he can say, well, you know, I inherited this terrible roster. I had to do a house cleaning. <laughs> what do you, you can't expect me to win this year. You can't expect me to win la- next year. House cleanings take three years. Let's talk about what we're going to do in 2022. And that's a way to get the pressure off him to win, number one. And number two is a way to hold his job that pays him $10 million a year to do stuff that high school football coaches do essentially free. Hmm. You, you know, as as I get older, I actually focus on other th- different things in sports. And I really like your section today on the geezer quarterback, why why we are, this is the season of the geezer quarterback. 
and as as fellow geezers, this is something we have to celebrate, right? Uh, this is what, uh, this is one of TMQ's themes for this year. Oh, I've yeah. declared this year the mm-hmm. year of the geezer quarterback, and geezer geezer in athletic terms. Not this is what America needs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, the the quarterbacks who are dominating the league, most of them are over thirty five years of age. Uh, the guy who's now taken the statistical helm as the best quarterback ever, Drew Brees, is thirty nine years old. He'll be forty when the Super Bowl kicks off, and he has a good chance of making it. If Tom Brady makes the Super Bowl again, he'll be 41 when the Super Bowl kicks off. These guys are playing longer, partially because it's now close to illegal to hit the quarterback. That that extends your athletic career. Uh, But it's allowing older guys, and they're not the only one. Check out Phillip Rivers' statistics. We we tend to... We're on the East Coast. We tend to ignore Philip Rivers because he's a surfer dude boy. But look <laughs> at where he is in, in all-time passing stats. Completions, yards yards per catch, touchdowns. He's creeping up there pretty – he's about to pass Dan Marino. I think that's a realistic goal for him. So there's a lot of older quarterbacks playing very well right now, and it's it's great for our aging, graying country. Yeah, I, I, want, I want to urge people it- – to uh, check out the, the the TMQ column because Greg, you obviously are looking for a another career here. Uh, the you are you a fan of like the Christmas Hallmark movies? Is this a, a long standing thing or a new thing? Uh, my wife is totally addicted to them, okay. and as a relationship compromise, I watch with her. And you know, readers in my column will see that <laughs> my my subsidiary Tuesday morning quarterback Enterprises has written a couple of uh, pitches for Hallmark uh, Channel Christmas specials, You'll and they're completely plausible to me. They're totally plausible. I, I'm yeah. ready to start filming tomorrow for the for the 2019 season. Yeah, I mean, you ought to send them in because I don't know. See, I'm, I'm noticing that that with with all of the streaming, you know, what do you call them? Plat, whether we describe those platforms, whether it's Amazon or Hulu, th- there's got to be there's a lot of money out there. People looking for scripts, right? right? So I'm thinking this would be the moment where every writer in America goes and they find their script either buried in the in the drawer or in the sock drawer or whatever, and send it in because you might be an Amazon original or you might be on Apple TV or you might be on who who the heck knows. Okay, so speaking of uh, political malpractice spinning around, because we we've gone from we've gone from uh, caravan politics uh, to uh, offense versus defense to geezer quarterbacks. Uh, let's go back to uh, politics. Uh, uh, we talked a lot last week about uh, Senator uh, Elizabeth Warren, who thought that her big play was going to be releasing that DNA test and that this was going to convince everybody that uh, that she would stand up, that she would fight back against Donald Trump and you know, even a week later, people continue to marvel about what a complete misfire that was. I mean, it, yeah. it, 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 I mean, in, in a news cycle where we forget everything 48 hours ago, people are still talking about what the hell was Elizabeth Warren thinking? I, I think Americans fundamentally like it when experts make themselves appear to be total idiots, uh, which which Elizabeth Warren has done with this DNA thing, this this very elaborate announcement that she's one one zillionth. It's not even Native American. The the DNA that was detected in her in her chromosomes comes from either Mexico or Central America. And she's one one It's hard to believe that there's anyone anywhere in the world who isn't one one zillionth Mexican or Central American. It, it, she looks so ridiculous. It's as if this was done to her by her worst enemy, except she did it to herself voluntarily. 
Well, and you point out that there's this weird DNA self-flattery comes at the expense of the Cherokee because, I mean, of, of all of the tribes that have really legitimate grievances, they would be among the most abused. And as you point out in the column today, the abuse now continues courtesy of a senator from Massachusetts. Yeah, uh, uh, many, if not most, Indian nations and tribes have legitimate grievances, not just against the United States government, but specifically against the United States Senate which ratified their treaties and then went on to ignore them. So now we have a United States senator going out of her way to essentially ridicule the Cherokees by saying, oh, look, look, I'm a white person from Harvard in the Senate. I'm a Cherokee, too. Give me a special exemption. And, and if you had to pick the, the Indian nation that had been most mistreated by the federal government, the Cherokee would be a, a, a pretty good candidate for that. And I, and I urge any of your listeners – Two, if they haven't already, and, and and a lot of people have not, go to the new National Museum of the American Indian on the mm -hmm. mall. It's a very impressive collection. There's art, history, politics. It's very neutral in tone. It's not politically correct hectoring. It's just the history of the United States and the American Indian. It's a great museum. You should go. She should go. That's for sure. <laughs> This is one of those stories where almost everybody involved in it behaved badly. It, there's, there's, there's almost no one that really comes out of this looking good. And, and you, you, uh, you single out uh, former Congressman Jace, uh, Jason Chaffetz, who actually used to be regarded as a reasonable member of Congress, who has now gone all whatever it is the people go. And you, uh, you talk about he, what did he, did he go to was it Disney World or something? Where, where did he was he was someplace and he, he put out a tweet standing next to a cigar store Indian, implying that he was with Senator. Senator Warren. Right. He, he's, he's at Disney World next to one of these ridiculous cigar store, cigar store Indians. And maybe Indians collect cigar <laughs> store Indians. I don't know. But he has this picture taken next to one of them. And the, and the caption on the picture says, here I am with Senator Elizabeth Warren. It's supposed to be hardy, har, har. Cherokees did not wear headdresses. The cigar store Indian he's standing next to has a giant headdress. He's definitely not a representation of a Cherokee. And I, I spent a few years living in Colorado. I knew that. I think almost everybody who lives in the Mountain West knows that Cherokees did not wear headdresses. It's an important part of their culture that they didn't do that. And here this guy used to be from Utah, and he either doesn't know it or, or more to the point, doesn't care. Yeah, or yeah, figures, I, 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 can take this, I can take this shot. It's Twitter. Who cares what's true or not? Right? Exactly. Yeah. Who, yeah. who cares whether it is, it is true or not? The other thing that continues to... I guess it's it's if you, if you live long enough, you watch how these things go around in, in, in spirals. I was certainly under the impression that this this uh, identification of individuals by one drop of blood. If you have one drop of Negro blood, you are Negro. If you have one drop of, uh, you know, Native American blood, you are Native American. I always thought that that was a racist uh, narrative, a uh, standard that it had been set up to, you know, keep keep the race pure, you know, you keep the, you know, some sort of racial purity. And now it's been turned around by people who go, I have just one drop, therefore I can claim this this identity. I mean, it is like the world has been turned upside down, that that one drop, which used to be uh, designed to exclude, now becomes the one drop that uh, allows you to proclaim your victimhood or your, your racial identity that might give you some, what, uh, added credibility or authenticity. That's a, that's a great point, Charlie, because the one drop of blood standard is 
intensely associated with slavery and then Jim Crow. Uh, and, and it has almost no basis in science. There's an increasing scientific argument that the whole concept of race is cultural rather than mm -hmm. physical, that, that concepts of race don't have a basis in genetics, that black people are no different from white people, no more different than blondes are from redheads. And, and yet to see Elizabeth Warren a prominent left winger claiming this one drop of blood, one one zillionth of a drop of blood for herself because she wants a special favor. Um, it, it is a sign of, we, we, we started off this podcast with the word debasing. It is another sign of debasing culture. And you started off this podcast by, by mentioning Trump wanting to sim simultaneously be in charge and claim victimhood. I think this notion of majority victimhood is very powerful and totally out of control. Claims of victimhood, rightly or wrongly, have long been important to the history of minority groups, genuine mm -hmm. minority groups, not Elizabeth Warren, but actual minority groups. Uh, but minority groups are, are, have, are, by nature, they're minorities. They're, they don't have much of the population. When, when the majority, when the middle class whites, the largest single cultural, social, and economic group in the United States, when they start claiming victimhood, it's really powerful, and it's really screwing many things up. And it has been coming a long time. I uh, I actually wrote a book called A Nation of Victims back in 1992. You 1992. You sure and yep. the, point, the point of that was exactly the point that you're making here, was that we now live in an age where everyone is looking for a way to declare themselves a victim. And if you add up all the groups that say that they are victims, it's more than 100% of, of the population. Well, and it's not. There's two things going on. I think one, and and, and both these things are in, are in your 1992 book. One is that we now, with government controlling more and more of the GDP, we perceive a financial incentive to claim victimhood. Absolutely, and human yes. beings are very responsive to financial incentives. The other is it's what kids are taught in school. They're taught that victims are good and noble, and the majority is evil and must be opposed. So people say, okay, then I'll be a victim too. I want to be good and noble. Yeah, it, it, it not only gives you the economic incentive, but obviously there's the moral authority that, that if you are a victim, um, you, you have instant moral authority and uh, you can't be held responsible for certain things that you do in, in, in your life. And, uh, you know, I, I'm probably going to regret saying this, but uh, this this explosion of the you know deeply personal college entrance essay which, you know, describes people, you know, how you overcame some some sort of a, a, a disadvantage. Many of those have morphed into uh, encouraging young people to think of how am I a victim? How am I or associated with a victim group? This is the way that that uh, that I express my my hyper individuality. And uh, boy, look what the consequences are. Greg, thank you so much once again. Uh, the column is up at the Weekly Standard website, the Tuesday morning quarterback. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow, and we'll be doing this all over again. <laughs>